be the New Testament reading for the sermon today, which is from the book of John in the New Testament. If you would like to open up your Bibles to the book of John, we'll be in chapter 18 and reading from verse 28 to 40. So that's John chapter 18, verse 28 to 40, if you'd like to go to it. Then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled but could eat the Passover. So Pilate went outside to them and said, What accusation do you bring against this man? They answered him, If this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. The Jews said to him, It is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. This was to fulfill the world that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Did you say this of your own accord or did others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not from the world. Then Pilate said to him, so you are a king. Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, what is truth? After he had said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him, but you have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover. So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? They cried out again, not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber. This is the word of the Lord. Morning, friends. Uh, If we've not met, my name is Nathan. I am one of the pastors here. Uh, It's my privilege and joy to unpack this passage uh, for us this morning. Uh, If you don't have a Bible uh, and would like one, there are Bibles available at the back of the room. So Darren's going back there, he's going to hold one up. If you don't have a Bible, I promise the next period of time is going to go better for you if you have a Bible open in front of you. And if you don't have a Bible that you can read at home, you can take one of those home with you. Make sure it's one of those ones though, we don't want any stealing going on this morning, but um, keep that open in front of you. In those Bibles, the passage we're in is on page 527. So go to page 527, if you grab one of those Bibles, look for the big 18 and the small 28. We're going to unpack that passage that was just read for us by Caitlin a moment ago. Let me pray and then we're going to dive in. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. And we pray as we come to it now that you would sanctify us in the truth. Your word is truth. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, As most of you probably know, uh, every year the Oxford Dictionary releases its word of the year. It's Wattie. So every year the, the, the team at Oxford Dictionary, they get together and they select a word or an expression that represents the passing year in language. So if you want to know what was happening in any particular year, what was the in thing, what was breaking new ground, what were the things that people were talking about, you just need to go back, or one way you can discover that is to go back and look at the Oxford Dictionary's word of the year. For example, back in 2005, the word of the year was podcast. 2009, it was unfriend. Nobody was being friendly in 2009, obviously a lot of unfriending on Facebook going on. Uh, 2013, it was selfie. 2014, vape. 2015, controversially, it wasn't actually a word, uh, it was an emoji, it was the, uh, the, the, the face with the tears of joy. Uh, I don't want to start any arguing or conflict here, 2021, a bad year for all of us, the, 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 the Wattie that year was vax. Um, in last year, 2022, uh, the, the, the Wattie was goblin mode. Now, if you're a parent, I'm about to help you make sense of most of your parenting experience. This is going to help you understand what happened in aisle three at Coles last Wednesday. Goblin mode, here it is. Goblin mode is a type of behaviour which is unapologetically self-indulgent or greedy 
or sloppy, typically in a way that rejects social norms or expectations. You're welcome. In 2016, the word of the year was post-truth, relating to, or defined as rather, relating to or denoting circumstances in which objective facts are less influential in shaping public opinion than appeals to emotion and personal belief. In other words, when it comes to the truth, what's most important now are not objective facts. So don't try to persuade me by appealing to facts. Persuade me by appealing to how I feel, by what I personally already believe to be true. For post-truth to work, one of two things has to happen. You either have to doubt the existence of absolutes, so doubt that some things are universally true across all times and cultures, or, perhaps even more frighteningly, you just have to not care about the truth, to believe that you can choose your own truth, create, define, if you like, your own reality. Whether we're talking about pronouns, or the use of public toilets, or a person's personal self-talk. I can be anything. And yet, as the old saying goes, eventually the truth catches up with us. And when it does, at least in my experience, oftentimes the truth hurts. A few years ago, we were talking together as a family about Luke 22, where Jesus tells his disciples that the greatest in God's kingdom are not those who are uh, serve, but though, uh, th not those who are served, but those who serve others. And one of my daughters, who shall remain unnamed, politely popped up, piped up rather, and, and said, so dad, mum's the greatest. <laughs> one of the, the challenges, I think, with even talking about the truth in today's culture is that we've just made such a mess of it. Like sin has so confused us and we've become so inconsistent that it's actually difficult to know where to start. When a friend of mine was at um, the University of Melbourne, uh, one of the girls he was studying with once said to him, even if there's truth, I mean, who cares? How's that relevant to me? But of course, the, the very fact that she was still alive indicated that at least subconsciously she cared about some truths. She hadn't ignored the truth that if she decided to take a shortcut to the cafeteria by jumping out of the window, gravity was going to kick in and that would seem rather relevant to her. See, the truth is, in lots of ways, even those who say there is no truth or they don't care about the truth can't help but live like there is truth, truth that they do, in fact, care about. No one wants to be lied to or married to an unfaithful spouse. Honesty and integrity are still highly valued in the workplace. A few years ago, I had to give evidence in a court of law, but before I could say anything, I had to swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. No parent teaches their kids there's no such thing as right and wrong, true and false. Like two plus two equals four. We don't say that's a great opinion. You've done such a terrific job with your impression of the numbers. We say that's true. If, like me, you, you grew up in my generation, you might remember Tom Cruise wanted the truth and Jack Nicholas warned us that we can't handle the truth and the X-Files promised us that the truth is out there. And if you're older than me, you might remember... John Lennon famously singing, all I want is truth now, just give me some truth now. <laughs> Professor David Wells writes, the truth is hot today, hotly disputed that is, and this is, well, true, right across a wide front. Doubts about truth are aired in rarefied intellectual circles and heard in movies. It's a question in which the wider, pop it's a question rather in the wider population or popular culture as well, and even in the church. Everywhere we are hearing the same uncertainties about the very possibility of truth. Think about this, the sort of thing we hear today, you, you, you have your truth and I have my truth, but nobody actually has the truth. But of course, if that's true, if you just have your truth and I have my truth, but nobody actually has the truth, then what Jesus says in this passage can't possibly be true. How could he have come to bear witness to the truth if there is no truth? He might have his truth and we might have our truth, but he wouldn't actually have the truth. And this kind of thinking, I think, infiltrates everything. 
What does this passage mean to you? Or think back to 2018, the Golden Globes, where Oprah Winfrey uh, received an award for her lifetime contribution to the film and TV industry. And she gave a very stirring, emotional, I think, speech afterwards where she spoke about the boldness and courage of all of those women who had finally said, enough is enough, me too. And if you heard the speech, you might know that for nine minutes she spoke a lot about their truth, your truth, but she said very, very little about the truth. What I know for sure is that speaking your truth is the most powerful tool we have, she said. For too long, women have not been heard or believed if they dared to speak their truth. Now, don't misunderstand, I'm, I'm not for a second calling into question the truthfulness of those women who have been tragically abused. But just think for a moment, isn't, isn't part of what they need somebody to actually get to the bottom of what happened? like to discover the truth so those awful men can be held to account. It's it's very, very problematic to go through life simply referring to your truth and my truth and their truth, but not the truth. Rebecca McLaughlin says this in her excellent book, Confronting Christianity, about Winfrey's speech. She says, The truth of sexual assault is undoubtedly personal. It is, in an important sense, your truth. But if that truth is not also objective... It is a lie. The women who have spoken out are ultimately commended not for telling their truth, but for telling the truth. The truth is often hard to prove, which is why, tragically, so many women do not speak out, fearing that their testimony will not be believed against that of a more powerful man. But no one doubts that there is truth to be discovered here, truth that is both personal and objective. Think about it. This is not unique to me, but just just think. The problem of saying that there is no truth is that the very statement shows itself to be a lie. You see, to claim that there is no truth is itself a truth claim. The truth is there is no truth, it's self-defeating. If you say, look, at the end of the day, you might have your truth and I might have my truth, but nobody actually has the truth, sounds a lot to me like you're saying that's true. The truth is you don't have the truth and I don't have the truth, We can't know the truth. That's the truth. Again, it's self-defeating. If you say, listen, even if the truth exists, we can't really be confident of knowing it, raises the question, can I be confident of knowing that? You sure seem confident that you can at least know that truth. The truth that you can't be confident of knowing the truth. Truth is just what corresponds with reality. Truth exists because God exists. And in this passage, where Jesus is on trial, and no one seems to care about the truth, and Pilate isn't really interested in hearing the truth, Jesus, notice, actually summarizes his whole purpose for coming into this world as to bear witness to the truth. And that those of us who are of the truth, for the truth, who belong to the truth, will actually listen to his voice. Look at verse 37. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. I I think John has written this account of Jesus' trial before Pilate in such a way that it speaks into the complexity and confusion of our world, our culture, with just like wonderful, beautiful clarity, revealing truth about us, truth about Jesus, his kingship and kingdom, and truth that, that lies at the very heart of the good news of Christianity, truth that has drawn us all here this morning, or if you're here, friend, and you're not a Christian this morning, truth that if you come to know and Believe, well then, through it, you can actually be saved. So what I want to do uh, this morning is just kind of walk us sort of semi-briskly through the passage. So if you imagine the passage is this room, we're just going to walk around the room, we're going to walk around the passage, or walk through the passage, and we're just going to point out a number of things along the way, explain some things, and then we'll finish 
by drawing out two truths. So the truth about the kingship and kingdom of Jesus and the truth that lies at the very heart of the gospel. So let me set the scene and walk us through the passage. Uh, It's the morning of the day of the crucifixion of Jesus. So notice John mentions in verse 28 that it was early morning. It's probably 6 a.m. So so we know from earlier in John's uh, gospel, from chapter 18, that the night before Judas had betrayed Jesus, the authorities had arrested him. He'd appeared before Annas, the former high priest, and then Caiaphas, the current high priest, and also the Jewish Sanhedrin, so a, a group of 70 religious leaders in Jerusalem who were, who, who were to govern Israel but under Roman rule, though John, notice, tells us nothing about that trial here. What we know, though, is that they've actually already determined to kill Jesus for his supposed blasphemous claims to be God, and now they're simply bringing Jesus to Pilate to get the job done. The first century philosopher Philo says that Pilate was, quote, by nature rigid and stubbornly harsh, of spiteful disposition and an exceedingly wrathful man. And he was, Pilate says, known for, quote, the bribes, the acts of pride, the acts of violence, the outrages, the cases of spiteful treatment and the constant murders without trial. Pilate was appointed governor of Judea in AD 26 by the then emperor of Rome, Tiberius. And as governor, he had like massive power over the Jews. So he could appoint the high priest in Jerusalem. He he controlled the the temple treasury, the money associated with the temple in Jerusalem. He he could hand down the death penalty in any moment. In that sense, he had the, the power of life and death. And he had an army of like 120 cavalry and possibly 5,000 foot soldiers to get the job done. So you might remember in Luke 13, a group of people come to Jesus and they ask him about those Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. What we know from history is that what happened is that Pilate actually took money from the temple in Jerusalem to fund a massive project, an aqueduct, to, to transport water into Caesarea where he lived from a spring that was like 40 kilometres away. Jews, of course, hated the fact that Pilate could just take their money and, 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 and fund his projects. And so they protested. Tens of thousands of them protested. Historians think that it was the Galileans in, in Luke 13 that started the protest. So what Pilate did in response was he took his, his army, or at least a portion of them, down to the, pro- the site of the protest... He dressed them in civilian attire and then told them to spread out and wait for his signal. And then when he gave his signal, he simply sat back and watched as they butchered and beat their way through the crowds. Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, Jesus said. But I tell you, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Jesus now sits inside the headquarters of Pilate. And we should remember that it's the Passover. So it's, it's like the number one event on the Jewish calendar. In that sense, it's a bit like Grand Final Week in Melbourne and that literally tens of thousands of people descended on Jerusalem. And so what Pilate would do is he would move from his headquarters, his home in Caesarea, to his headquarters in Jerusalem to keep an eye on things, to make sure that things don't get out of control. Well, now it's Friday morning, I suspect he's barely finished breakfast, when the Jews arrive with Jesus. You'll notice that in verse 28, that the Jewish religious leaders won't go inside to Pilate. That's because Roman Gentiles were known to abort babies in their homes. And if that were the case for Pilate, and the Jews went inside, they would place themselves around death, which would make them ceremonially unclean. And that would prevent them from celebrating all the ongoing festivities that surround the Passover. So don't be mistaken or confused by John's little expression there at the end of verse 28, eat the Passover. That's just like a shorthand way 
of referring to all of the festivities that surround the Passover. It can include things like the Feast of Unleavened Bread. The important thing to note is, is to not miss the irony. So think about it. These, these religious leaders, these Jewish leaders are very, very scrupulous. But they care very much. They're very concerned about being externally clean, looking externally righteous. We can't go in there. We might become defiled. We can't be around sin, murder, death. And yet all the while they are in their hearts plotting and planning and strategizing the murder and death of Jesus. And part of what they're not going inside does is it creates this very interesting dynamic, commentators point this out, where for the rest of this chapter and the start of next chapter, Pilate now finds himself caught, stuck, pulled between Jesus and the world. Will he listen to the voice of the one who came to bear witness to the truth or will he listen to those who want to extinguish it? So just cast your eyes over the the, the chapter and let me show you what I mean. If you look at verse 29, we'll start there. John records, notice, so he's recording history here, but it's just very interesting. He's just a very graphic picture of Pilate being caught between Jesus and the world. So look at verse 29, Pilate went outside to them. Now look down to verse 33, Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus. Now look down at verse 38, after Pilate had said this, he went back outside to the Jews Chapter 19, verse 1, Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. In other words, he's back inside. Chapter 19, verse 4, Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I am bringing him out to you so that you may know that I find no guilt in him. Chapter 19, verse 9, Pilate entered into his headquarters again and said to Jesus. Chapter 19, verse 12, Pilate's back outside. From then on, Pilate sought to release Jesus, but the Jews cried out. Then finally, notice chapter 19, verse 13, Pilate goes back inside, he gets Jesus, he brings him outside, he sits down and he renders his final judgment. He is inside, outside, inside, outside, back inside, then back outside. He is pulled between Jesus and the world. Will he listen to the one who bears witness to the truth or to those who oppose it? You might feel like you come in here and you listen to the voice of Jesus and then you go back out into the world, to your university, your high school, your workplace, your family, and you feel pulled between listening to the voice of Jesus and listening to the voice of the world. If that's you, you, should, you just should sit in this account of Pilate for the next week or so. Just, just read Jesus before Pilate and just note everything you can learn about the danger of fearing people more than God and of being a person who is pragmatic rather than a person of principle. We know from earlier in chapter 18 that there were Roman soldiers at the arrest of Jesus. So that actually means that the Jewish religious leaders had already spoken to Pilate and told him about Jesus. And it's actually not that hard to figure out what they must have said to him. You might have uh, had the experience where you've had an argument with someone And uh, you're ticked off about something, but you don't really want to tell them what you're ticked off about. And so the argument kind of rolls on, but then the more the argument goes on, you kind of can't really help but let the the real issue sort of leak out of you. That's actually a bit like these Jews before Pilate. The real issue actually leaks out of them over in chapter 19, verse 7, if you look there. They say, we have a law, and according to that law, Jesus ought to die. Why? Why? because he has made himself to be the son of God. But of course, the the, the Jews aren't dumb. They know that Pilate's not really going to want to get involved in some, you know, internal, bizarre Jewish theological squabble over some deluded Galilean who's going around claiming to be some kind of God. But he is going to want to get involved if there's some Jew going around stirring up a rebellion against Rome by claiming to be king. That's why if you look at chapter 18... The whole trial before Pilate centers on the kingship of Jesus. So the Jews have gone to Pilate. They've told him that there's this Jew named Jesus going around raising a revolt against Rome by claiming to be a king. Pilate has sent soldiers to arrest Jesus. 
Jesus is now being brought to Pilate, but then Pilate, notice, asks, what accusation do you bring against this man? I don't think the Jews are expecting that. They're they're anticipating Pilate just, just rubber stamping the whole thing. Let's crucify him, which is why they're so irritated in verse 30. If this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. In other words, we've already tried him, Pilate. We found him guilty. We've told you what you need to know. You don't need another trial in order to sentence him to death. So don't misunderstand Pilate in this passage. He is is not on a, a crusade for justice. He's not a truth warrior. I don't think he gives a rip about either. But he does care about some group of Jews coming and presuming upon him. Like they can tell him, boss him around, tell him what he has to do. That's why Pilate basically says to him, you you want to answer my questions, well then go deal with the matter yourself. Verse 29, take him yourself and judge him by your own law. Now, Pilate of course knows full well what he's doing. The Jewish religious leaders want Jesus dead. But to keep control of the kind of masses the Romans had passed a law that removed their capacity to do it. So the the, the Jewish Sanhedrin could try a person, they could sentence a person to death, find them guilty, sentence them to death, but they actually needed someone like Pilate to approve it. That's why they say, verse 31, it is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. So I want you to just just picture the scene out the front of Pilate's headquarters that day. So the the Jews are there, there's a crowd building, Pilate's outside, Jesus is inside, and it looks chaotic and out of control. They're they're fighting, squabbling, self-interest, political one-upmanship. And as John recalls and records the scene in his gospel, he pauses. He pauses to remind us that it's actually the one inside who is still in control. Verse 32, this was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. You see, if the Jews took Jesus and simply sentenced him to death under their law and that got approved and they stoned him, well then, they would have stoned him. But Jesus, throughout John's Gospel, has been speaking again and again about his crucifixion, about his being lifted up. Think of Jesus before Nicodemus in John 3, 15. Just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, so that everyone who believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. You might be in here this morning and life just feels, it feels out of control. So the the doctor says the C word, the pregnancy test comes back negative again, the kids aren't going well spiritually, the plans fall through, the job application is a no, the anxiety keeps bubbling to the surface, it keeps returning, the budget isn't doing well. And if you're honest, you you feel not just like you're not in control. You actually, if you're being honest, you actually feel sometimes like God's not in control. I, I think verses like verse 32 are in the Bible to assure you that He is. You'll notice when Pilate goes back inside, verse 33... He asked Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? And I, I personally think that Pilate is he's kind of giving Jesus a way out here. So it's less obvious in the uh, English, but in the original, the, the you is kind of emphatic, so it comes first. It's like, you, you, king of the Jews, as if to say, look at you, you are very obviously not a king. So, so just say no, and everyone can go home. Jesus, notice, does three things in response to Pilate's question. Number one, he doesn't answer his question directly. He answers it, but he responds to his question by asking a question of his own. 
if you've lived any period of time in this world and you're all living and breathing, so you have, you should know that sometimes life throws up circumstances where simple yes or no answers are not sufficient. Uh, I was working as a, a labourer on a building site or sites in Melbourne uh, a while ago and invariably what would happen, typically if I was started working with a new uh, group of guys, is they would, they would end up saying to me, so you're actually a minister. Um, one guy said to me, don't take this the wrong way. And you know, when someone starts something with, don't take this the wrong way, it's, it's, it's going to be interesting. He said to me, don't take this the wrong way, but, but you seem kind of semi or almost reasonable, by which he meant you, you kind of seem like you've got a brain. In his mind, being a minister or being a Christian and having a brain just kind of didn't go together. Um, others would say to me things like, hang on, but you're married. I mean, didn't you say you have like five kids? They were confusing, of course, Catholicism with Christianity. So just think about it. If I, if I simply respond to their question, so you're a minister, by saying, yeah, I'm a minister, that would only really compound their confusion, not clarify things for them. But I couldn't say no, because I was, of course, I had been a minister, and so I often found that I had some explaining to do. Well, when Pilate says to Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus can't really say yes, because Pilate's got so much baggage in his mind about what it would mean for Jesus to be the king of the Jews that it would only confuse, not clarify things. But he can't really say no either, because he is, of course, a king, a king who's come to bear witness to the truth. So we can't lie, and so he's got some explaining to do, which is why, number two, Notice Jesus begins to define the nature of his kingship and kingdom negatively. So this is what my kingship and my kingdom are not. And basically he says that, that his kingdom is not like the kingdoms of this world. It is literally, end of verse 36, not from here. Very simply, that means that you can't look to the kingdoms of this world or imitate them to understand the nature of his kingdom. It's real, but it's from a different realm. Can't look to Nazi Germany or Putin's invasion of the Ukraine or the Roman Empire of the first century or 21st century Australia under Elbo and King Charles, for that matter, to understand the kingship and kingdom of Jesus. No one from here made Jesus king. If they had, well, they might have been fighting when he was delivered over to the Jews, but that wasn't the case because the kingship of Jesus is about something far more than political control of Pilate and the then Roman Empire or any other contemporary kingdom or nation of this world today, for that matter. Pilate, notice, here's the word kingdom. You can kind of imagine the kind of mental cogs turning over. He's a kingdom. The only ones with kingdoms are kings. And so he blurts out verse 37, so you are a king. And so now Jesus, notice number three, defines the nature of his kingship positively. Verse 37, for this purpose I was born. In other words, Pilate, no one from here made me king, but don't misunderstand, I was born to be king. I came into this world, and for this purpose, rather, I've come into the world to bear witness to the truth. So notice the double purpose clause. I was born for the purpose of being a king, and I have come into the world for the purpose of bearing witness to the truth. So the kingship of Jesus is very much wrapped up in his bearing witness to the truth. And that means that the means by which Jesus was exercising his saving rule and building his kingdom was primarily through his bearing witness to the truth. The truth about God, about our sin and rebellion against him, about our judgment, the judgment to come, about our need for a saviour, about the fact that Jesus is the king who came to save us that through his life and death and resurrection, we can be forgiven and reconciled to the God who made us and who loves us. 
about his coming again to bring his kingdom in full, where this world will be made new and he will wipe every tear from our eyes and there will be no sickness and no suffering and no death because there will be no sin. For this purpose I was born and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice and Pilate scoffs, verse 38, what is truth? Don't misunderstand, Pilate's not some postmodern living in a post-truth world. He is, I think, a petulant, petty little ruler. And he is, I think, quite frankly, peeved that his mourning has been interrupted by Jesus and the Jews and he is pessimistic about the prospect of actually getting to the bottom of what's really going on. How many people will find themselves outside of God's kingdom forever in hell because year after year week after week they would rather simply go about their day than listen to and seriously consider the truth claims of Jesus Pilate may be pessimistic about the prospect of getting to the bottom of what's really going on but there's one thing he is certain of and that's this the man inside his headquarters is no political threat to Rome. Deluded, maybe, but he's not dangerous. And so notice he goes back outside and tells the Jews, verse 38, I find no guilt in him. And he evokes this custom that Rome had with the Jews at the Passover where they would release a a Jew who was in Roman custody as an act of amnesty. But the Jews don't want Jesus released. Another Jew named Barabbas goes free, notice verse 40, who ironically we know from other Gospels was actually guilty of committing a political revolt against Rome and due to be crucified that day. So other translations like the CSB will will translate the word robber as a revolutionary. He goes free. Jesus remains inside Pilate's headquarters. And Pilate now has a vacant cross. And that's where we leave the passage, that's where we leave the narrative. I want to finish by drawing out two truths. Number one, the truth about the kingship and kingdom of Jesus. When Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world, He wasn't saying that his kingdom isn't in any sense present in the world. We are living in the overlap of the ages. So when Jesus, for example, began his public ministry, he said, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe the good news. The kingdom was at hand because the king was at hand. The kingdom was present because the king was present. The arrival of the kingdom in the coming of the king was good news. Why? Because he came come to save us, to live the perfect life that we haven't lived and to die the death that we deserve and to rise again so that if we repent of our sin and trust in him, we might enter now his kingdom as citizens. That's why throughout the New Testament, we Christians are referred to as exiles. Our citizenship is in heaven. We have been, Paul says, Colossians 1, transferred out of the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of God's beloved Son. The Bible promises us that one day all of God's people, so all of us who have trusted in Jesus, will live together in God's place, which will be this world redeemed, made new, under God's King. The Lord Jesus will return, he will wipe every tear from our eyes and he will reign and rule in a world that will be unimaginably good. And so Jesus taught us to pray like we did earlier in the service in the Lord's Prayer, your kingdom come. But his kingdom is actually advancing now, not through any one nation, not through some worldly political regime, not by people grasping for worldly power, Christians seeking to control culture, but through ordinary people, ordinary Christians like you and me, who bear witness to the truth. That's the means by which God is at work in the world, building his kingdom and gathering a people to Jesus. Let's just think for a moment, what is Coomera Baptist Church? What's 
What's actually happening right now? What's the nature of this gathering that we're all in this morning? About 10 years ago, Norelle and I lived in Washington, D.C. for a while. And every May, uh, D.C. has uh, World Embassy Day, where a number of the embassies, there's stacks of them in D.C., there's like over 170 of them, well, they, many of them throw open their doors so that people can come and they can experience the, the food and the art and the dance and the, the culture of the various countries they represent. So you can go to the Austrian embassy and get an, an apple strudel. Or you can go to the, the Belgium embassy and sink a Belgium beer. Or you can go to the Danish embassy and, and, and eat a, a Danish pastry. Just think for a moment about what an embassy actually is. I'm drawing here from a guy called Jonathan Lehman. An embassy is a place where one nation is represented inside of another nation. Its job is to declare and pursue the goals and the objectives of the home nation to the host nation. Embassies are supposed to provide care and protection to citizens who are living away from their home in that host country. This is an embassy. Coomera Baptist Church is an embassy of the kingdom of Christ, which is not from this world. We are in the world, but we are not of the world. And we don't throw open our doors once a year in May. We throw open our doors every week so that people can come and hear and the good news of Jesus and experience the culture of his kingdom. Our job is to declare and pursue the goals and the objectives of his heavenly kingdom to the peoples of this world. But just suppose you're an American, you're in D.C., it's World Embassy Day, you stroll into the Austrian embassy and they give you a Macca's apple pie instead of an Austrian apple strudel. You might, you might walk out thinking that Austria doesn't really have much to offer because it's just like America. Generally speaking, I think the church in Australia would be much healthier today and our witness in the world would be much more compelling if over the last 30 to 50 years, we'd thought much less about how attractionally the same we can be to the world and more about how attractionally different we can be. When we were in DC, uh, we were part of this church that supported a missionary by the name of Mac. And he was um, working in a very uh, difficult place in the Middle East. And one morning after church, he got to talking with this young Nepalese guy named Basanta. And he wasn't a Christian, and so they were talking. He was asking him questions. He was praying for opportunities to share the gospel with him. He told him about the good news of Jesus, his life, his death, his resurrection. If he trusts in him, he can have his sins forgiven, be reconciled to God, have life in his name. And then he asked, he asked him if, if, he would, if he was ready to give his life to Jesus. And Basanta said he was. But first, he said, I, I have to tell you a story. And he said to him, do you see this, this Bible? And he pulled out this old, worn-out Bible. He said, somebody gave my brother this Bible in Saudi Arabia, and he became a Christian. And so he sent the Bible to my other brother who lives in Iraq. He's a driver in a very dangerous place. He read it, and he became a Christian too. And so he sent the Bible to my mum and dad in Nepal, and they read it, and they've become Christians. They've got a house church in, in, in their home. And then he said, I'm the last brother. My parents sent me the Bible and they told me to read it because I ought to become a Christian too. And I want to. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Friends, we don't have to be evangelistic ninjas or apologetic masters. We just have to bear witness to the truth because that's the means that Jesus has chosen to exercise his saving kingship and to build his kingdom. Like Jesus before Pilate, very often we may appear weak. Like Jesus before Pilate, 
there may well be times when we sound to the world, frankly, deluded. What do you mean? You actually believe that real, like lasting joy isn't found in expressing yourself, but in denying yourself and trusting in Jesus? But Jesus has purchased a people for himself. And he will work through our imperfect efforts to bear witness to the truth and to draw them, that is, gather them to him. Truth number one, the truth about the kingship and kingdom of Jesus. Finally, number two, the truth that lies at the very heart of the gospel. When you think about it, there are, there are actually lots and lots of things that don't get mentioned in all four gospels. Things that you would suspect that they would. Like they might be mentioned in one or, or two or three of the four gospels, but they're not mentioned in all four gospels. So, for example, the the virgin birth isn't mentioned in all four Gospels. The institution of the Lord's Supper isn't in all four Gospels. The raising of Lazarus isn't in all four Gospels. The transfiguration isn't in all four Gospels. Joseph isn't named in all four Gospels. Not even the disciples are actually named in all four Gospels. And yet, the Barabbas that we meet very briefly in verse 40 is... A few years ago, a guy called John Bloom wrote, I thought, a great article on this. At one point in the article, he just says that just because something isn't mentioned in all four Gospels doesn't mean it's unimportant, right? So, so lots of things that are very, very important do not get mentioned in all four Gospels. But the fact that, that, that Brabus is mentioned in all four Gospels shouldn't be lost on us. We, we should pay attention to it. God clearly wants us to notice something important about him. I think what we're supposed to notice is the fact that Barabbas illustrates the truth which lies at the very heart of the cross and the very heart of the good news of Christianity. The truth is called penal substitutionary atonement. I know that's a lot, kind of a lot of theological jargon. Simple to understand, penal penalty, substitution in the place of. So the fundamental thing that is happening on the cross is that Jesus is dying in the place of guilty sinners. He is bearing the right wrath of God that our sinful rebellion against him deserves so that we can be forgiven and reconciled to God and be part of Christ's kingdom. That God might be both just and the justifier of sinners like us and welcome us into the kingdom of his beloved son. John wants us to see the events, I think, of the next two chapters through this lens. Here it is. Pilate announces Jesus not guilty, verse 38. And yet, a guilty man named Barabbas, who's already been tried and is due to be crucified, that day goes free, and Jesus will now take his place on his cross. Listen to one commentator. Barabbas was the only man in the world who could say that Jesus Christ took his physical place. But I can say that Jesus Christ took my spiritual place. It was I who deserved to die. It was I who deserved that the wrath of God should be poured upon me. But he was delivered up for my offences. He was handed over because of my sins. This is why we speak of the substitutionary atonement. Christ was my substitute. Christianity can be explained in three phrases. I deserved hell. Jesus took my hell. There is now nothing left for me but his heaven. John, like the other gospel writers, never mentions Barabbas again. We don't know what happened to him. We don't know how he spent that first Good Friday. Did he follow the crowd from Pilate's headquarters to the side of the cross? Did he hear the jeers of the crowd and look at Jesus hanging in his place and think, that should have been me? Did he know the two men hanging on either side of Jesus? It's very likely that they were part of the same insurrection that Barabbas had been a part of. Did he know them? Were they his friends? Was it his friend who said to Jesus, 
remember me when you enter your kingdom? Did you hear Jesus say, today you will be with me in paradise? Was his heart filled with wonder? Did it leap and skip a beat? Or did he simply remain unchanged? Did he simply go back to his old life, believing that talk of a kingdom of paradise and such things is just too good to be true, scoffing like Pilate? That can't possibly be true. But the thing about the truth, as other people point out, is that it's true. Whether you choose to believe it or not. Two plus two equals four. The earth revolves around the sun. And the laws of gravity right now or the reality of gravity right now, is holding down your bottom. You can see the maths test this week, and if one of the questions was, what is 2 plus 2? You could write down 89, or 36, or 5, but it wouldn't change reality. It wouldn't alter the truth. And yet the way for you to truly benefit from the truth in that moment is to believe it. Like to embrace it, to trust it, to live in the light of it, to pick up your pen and actually write down four. The truth about us, the truth about the kingship and kingdom of Jesus, the truth about his substitutionary death on the cross in the place of sinners like us, it's true. Whether you choose to believe it or not. But in order to benefit from it, that is in order to really take advantage of it, they must, in a, a very real, personal, profound, like life-altering, transforming way, become your truth. You have to believe not just that Jesus died, but that he died for you. You have to believe him, embrace him, trust him, live in the light of him, because he said, everyone who is of the truth listens to his voice. It was C.S. Lewis who said, I believe in Christianity, that is, I believe it's true, as I believe that the sun has risen. Not only because I see it, but because by it, I see everything else. For this purpose, I was born and for this purpose, I've come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Listen, learn, believe, embrace, obey. Let's pray.